History This Week, January 23rd, 1907. I'm Sally Helm. The Kansas State Legislature has convened for a noontime vote. They're here to formally elect their next U.S. senator. Later, the Topeka State Journal will report, quote, it was probably about as formal, cut-and-dried an affair as could well be imagined. 1907 newspapers speak for nothing to see here. Senate elections are different at this time. Senators aren't directly elected by the people. That won't happen until the 17th Amendment gets ratified in 1913. So the state legislature has their pick. And as everyone expected, they pick a popular Kansas politician named Charles Curtis. Curtis gives a little speech. Then the newspaper says that he has a 30-minute handshaking bee, meaning, I guess, he just shakes a lot of hands. And then he heads off to Washington to join the Kansas delegation. It's just as the newspaper said, cut and dried. And yet, Charles Curtis's election is a milestone. He's the first member of a Native American nation to be elected to the U.S. Senate. And in a few short years, he will rise even higher, becoming vice president of the United States. Charles Curtis's legacy is complicated. A piece of legislation that bore his name, the Curtis Act, was used to weaken tribal sovereignty and transfer Native American lands to the U.S. government. It's condemned by many Native people today. But Curtis also broke a major barrier. Though the term wasn't around back then, Curtis was the first person of color to serve as vice president. The second is Vice President Kamala Harris. Notwithstanding the negative effects that that one act had, if you're looking at it at this time in history, where Americans were just openly white supremacists, their policies were openly white supremacists, I think that his legacy is in having not issued or turned his back on his call heritage. He never did that. And I think that that's really important. Today, a forgotten first. Who was Charles Curtis? And what can his story begin to tell us about the complexities of representation? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Brett Chapman is a member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. He also has Kiowa and Ponca heritage. And unlike probably most people, he first learned about Charles Curtis in school. Here in Oklahoma, there's a good number of tribes here. And so in high school, we had a ninth grade class called Oklahoma History. That's probably where I learned about Charles Curtis because that Curtis Act had some pretty bad ramifications on these tribes out here. When Chapman grew up, he became a lawyer focusing on Native American rights. And so he learned a lot more about the Curtis Act And he also took the time to learn about Charles Curtis, the man. The two of them have roots in the same region of the world. Chapman has Ponca heritage on his mother's side. Curtis was Kaw. 
And according to some oral traditions and other historical evidence... The Poncas, the Kaws, the Omahas, the Osages, and the Quapaws, they're five different tribes today, but they were all one large tribe living together. These tribes continue to share a cultural and linguistic heritage. And according to Kaw oral history, their ancestors may have lived together hundreds of years ago in and around an ancient city called Cahokia. It's kind of a forgotten site, but it's just outside of St. Louis. There's a huge pyramid, and this site at one time had a population of some like 15,000, which actually rivaled some of the biggest cities in Europe at the time. Farmers around Cahokia grew tons of corn and also crops like goosefoot and canary grass. They supported this huge community full of politicians, artisans, astronomers. It's thought that Cahokia was pretty class stratified. The elites may have lived on top of the big earthen mounds that remain today, where they'd have been literally looking down on the commoners. And at some point, whether due to climate change or other factors, this city kind of fell and these tribes started moving away. Curtis's ancestors ultimately end up settling in what is now Kansas. The Kaw live in villages on the banks of a river. They travel twice a year to hunt buffalo on the plains. But a threat is gathering hundreds of miles away as white Europeans begin to settle in what is now New England. As the United States becomes a country and begins to expand, its citizens and politicians begin trying to strip Native people of their land. Not all at once. The United States of America is a huge country. And so it depends on where you are. If you were on the East Coast, if you're like the Cherokees, this is starting way back, you know, in the 1700s. But if you're further west, like maybe the Nez Perces or the Lakotas, this doesn't start coming to a head until after the 1850s. So it just kind of really goes very slowly at first for most of them. There are battles over land all through the late 1700s and early 1800s. Even wars, like the first Seminole War in what is now Florida. White settlers try to take valuable Native American farmland by force. And then in 1830, President Andrew Jackson implements a policy that has been talked about for years. It was known as Indian Removal. He signs the Indian Removal Act, a law that was supposed to authorize, quote, voluntary removal of Native people from their land to an area of land in what is now Oklahoma. Back then, the U.S. called it Indian Territory. The act supposedly just allowed for peacefully negotiated treaties between the U.S. and Native American nations. Chapman says it's important to remember that these are nations we're talking about. What defines Native Americans in the United States is sovereignty. And so what is important about these treaties is governments do not make treaties between other races of people. They don't make treaties between like corporations or groups. It's nation to nation. And yet this removal policy does not really happen through peacefully negotiated treaties. It often happens by force. Many people in these Native American nations resist this idea that they should just swap their land for some other land somewhere else. The Seminoles fight back in the Second Seminole War. Many people in the Cherokee Nation refuse to be moved, so 7,000 U.S. soldiers move them by force. The Cherokee are forced to walk out of their homeland on a march that becomes known as the Trail of Tears. It was an event so devastating that at least a quarter of the Cherokee population would not survive it. Some Native American people affected by the Indian Removal Act moved to land that had been claimed by other tribes, including the Kaw. 
The cause land gets whittled down over the early 1800s through a series of treaties. And in the middle of that century, the Kaw and other Midwestern Plains tribes also get caught up in a different conflict, the Civil War. In the lead up to the Civil War, the decade before, you're seeing all these Northerners, these abolitionists, running in from New York, Pennsylvania, trying to populate Kansas. Southerners and pro-slavery factions do the same. The two sides engage in bloody battles all over Kansas to establish whether Kansas will be a free state or a slave state. This period of time becomes known as Bleeding Kansas. But the land they're fighting over and will ultimately take, it's not like it's uninhabited. And a lot of people don't factor in Native Americans into this. It's always like, you know, it was just about the Northerners not wanting to have free soil out in the territories. Well, what these territories were, that's actually Native American territory. And so for a lot of the Plains tribes, they're just basically collateral damage. The U.S. introduces the reservation system in 1851 to further restrict Native American land and give it to white settlers instead. By 1860, the year before the start of the Civil War, the Kaw Nation has shrunk from 20 million acres of land to a 2 million acre reservation. And within a year, another treaty will be ratified that will shrink it again to just 80,000 acres. This is the world into which Charles Curtis is born. On January 25th, 1860. His father was a white European settler, and his mother had Kaw, Osage, and Potawatomi ancestry. Little Charles spends his early years in a log cabin by the Kansas River. His mom tosses him into that river so he can learn how to swim. He learns to ride a horse before he's three. His first languages are Kaw and French. And at a certain point, his dad goes off to fight in the Civil War, and his mom dies when he's like three or four. And then he goes and lives with his maternal grandparents over on the Kaw Reservation at a very young age. He stays there until he's about eight. But then something happens that pushes him back towards the world of the European settlers. In 1868, the Kaw Reservation where he's living gets raided by another tribe. This happened from time to time. You have to understand in this context during the Civil War afterwards, the tribes on the plains like the Cheyennes, they're really getting resource bare and the government's not honoring their treaties. So they're raiding other tribes, raiding other villages and things of that nature to try to get resources. During one of these raids, young Curtis volunteers to go to Fort Topeka to get help from the soldiers there. He now speaks English as well as Kaw and French, so he'll be able to carry the message. As he tells the story later, he leaves the reservation on foot because there are no horses available. He travels through the night, 60 miles. Curtis gets a lot of congratulation after this adventure, becomes a mini-celebrity. But his grandparents on the reservation think to themselves, that was dangerous. And they decide to send him to live with his paternal grandparents instead, in the city. He goes from this situation where he is living on the Kaw Reservation, basically speaking Kaw and French. Then he's put more in, like, white American society because of his father's parents. It's here that this cultural divide Curtis will straddle for the rest of his life really comes into focus. He leaves the life he's known on the reservation and goes to Topeka. He spends some time as a horse jockey. He's pretty good. And then when he's about 15, he decides that he wants to go back to the reservation to live with his mom's parents again. But around that same time, the tribe is forced to move. One of the things they did is they moved these tribes so many times. 
they can't settle down. They can't get roots. Each time they start to get something going, they pick them up and move them again. And that's what you see happening here. And so when he was like a teenager, they moved the cause to Oklahoma next to the Poncas where they are today. Curtis's grandmother invites him to her wagon for a talk. He says he wants to come live with the Kaw again. And she says, don't do it. You should go back to Topeka. Go to school. She's essentially saying, assimilate. Which is what the U.S. government had been saying to Native American people, too, for a hundred years. I can understand the grandma saying that, because while it is true, there were a lot of tribes that fought back. Some of them couldn't, like the cause. They're very small. There was probably maybe a thousand of them at that time. I mean, what else could they do? You know, they're trying to survive in the world that they are in. And so, yeah, I can totally understand these grandparents saying that because they're just trying to get their kids to get ahead and have a better life. So Curtis packs up his things in a flower sack, gets on his horse, and rides back to Topeka. He later calls this a turning point in his life. Back in the city, he throws himself into his work in high school. And he does well. He's very successful in what he does. You know, he's clearly a good people person, and so he makes friends easy. In his case, yeah, it worked for him. But it's important to know that this didn't work for a lot of others. Curtis kind of fits in with the white culture around him, the frontier mythology. He picks up this, like, white mentality, especially on the frontier at the time, is that everyone's a self-made man and that he's picking himself up by his own bootstraps and building himself. And that was really the widespread mentality of white people on the frontier, especially at that time. When he leaves high school, he gets a job with a lawyer named Mr. Cash. One thing leads to another, and pretty soon, Curtis is studying law. At 21, he sits for the bar exam, passes, and starts building a practice as a lawyer. His clients are telling him, you should go into politics. And he does. In 1884, he runs for Shawnee County attorney on the platform, if you don't want the laws enforced, then don't vote for me. He wins and embarks on his political career. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Charles Curtis gets into politics, and he's a natural. He's very charismatic. They said he kept a little black book and an index roll of basically anyone who wrote him a letter, anyone he ever met. And so he had just very detailed feeling of the pulse of people there in Kansas. In 1892, he runs for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives as a Republican and wins. And during his time in the House, Curtis sponsors a major piece of legislation. 
1896 is when this all kind of comes to a head when he passes this Curtis Act. The Curtis Act is an amendment to something called the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act had authorized the U.S. federal government to break up territories of some of the largest Native American tribes and give them out as individual plots of land to individual Native people. The goal was to disrupt Native American power and social life and cultural traditions and speed assimilation. Assimilation was the government's big idea at this point when it came to Native Americans. And the Curtis Act. What they're doing is applying that Dawes Act to Oklahoma. And so they're trying to break up what were called the five civilized tribes. They're trying to break up their tribal governments um, and their communal lands in Oklahoma. And then they're giving the excess to white settlers and white people that are coming in. The five civilized tribes are the Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, and Creek. They were called that because they had adopted some aspects of white European culture. At this time, they're some of the most powerful Native nations in America. These tribes were exempt from the Dawes Act. That's why the Curtis Act is important. This act ends up resulting in them losing millions. I think it was almost 100 million acres of communal lands and even more later on. I think the best way to put it in perspective is the total combined land holding of Native American tribes was about the size of France. And by the time it was all said and done, you cut it down to about the size of Utah and it's completely non-contiguous. So the Dawes Act and the Curtis Act are devastating, though Curtis certainly thought he was doing the right thing. Yeah, I think Curtis would point to the title of the act, which was an act for the protection of the people of the Indian Territory and for other purposes. At this time, they thought that assimilation and breakdown of tribal government and allotment of lands to the individual to introduce them to capitalism, they thought that this was truly in their best interest, and it turns out that it was not. But remember, Curtis's feeling about his own life was that assimilation had been good for him. He said that his grandmother's advice to go back to school in Topeka was the best advice he'd ever gotten. Plus, Chapman reminds us, a lot of people at this time thought that assimilationist policies were best. He told us that the concept of protecting Native American tradition or restoring lands would have been a complete non-starter. When he later wrote his autobiography, Curtis did say that he was unhappy with the final version of the act. But nevertheless, it became an important part of his legacy. Not the only part, though. In 1907, Curtis gets elected to the Senate. And in 1925, he becomes the first ever Senate majority leader. The role hadn't existed before that. And Curtis's ability to straddle white and Native American culture kind of helps him out as a politician. He fit this mold of assimilation. And then he was, again, the self-made man, too. You know, came up from nothing. They, they kind of romanticized that history of his. In 1928, Curtis has a brief run for president. He's going against Herbert Hoover for the Republican nomination. He was part of this anti-Hoover coalition at the time. That coalition loses. And then as part of a way to placate them, I think the pro-Hoover faction threw him the nomination of vice president. And the Hoover-Curtis ticket wins. Charles Curtis becomes the first person of color elected to the second highest seat in the land. Although the term person of color is an anachronism. It wasn't used back then. While he's vice president, Curtis honors his caw ancestry. He decorates his office with Native American artifacts. He poses for pictures wearing traditional headdresses. It is a real, important, and visible moment of representation. I think for him to start off where a lot of our ancestors start off on the reservation and make it that high without eschewing it, 
He never thought that he was too good for it. He always kept a connection to it and stayed close to it. Unfortunately for Curtis, in the role of vice president, he doesn't have all that much to do. He misses his Senate majority leader days when he was busier and more important. A stage play from the time actually pokes fun at Curtis by featuring a vice president who can only get into the White House on tours. He wasn't really a big part, other than probably more ceremonial role, of the Hoover administration, which, as history would turn out, Hoover wasn't the greatest president. Hoover loses big in 1932, in the midst of the Great Depression. And Curtis essentially retires from politics. He dies a few years later, in 1936, in Washington, D.C. And today, Curtis is still the only member of a Native American nation who has ever risen so high in politics. Even with his arguably very flawed perspective on Native American policy, he is an important first. The big problem for Native Americans is that we're not visible in society today, and he was. Everyone knew that he was Indian, that he was caught. Everyone knew that back then. And so I think that that's a thing to celebrate. It was a remarkable accomplishment, but that visibility, it was fleeting. It's crazy how when he was prominent in office, all these things happened. In 1924, he proposed the Indian Citizenship Act, and then right after they get Indian citizenship, and then the next election after that, they got an Indian on the presidential ticket, and then just kind of topped out right there. It's just died off since then, until now. In the 2020 election, a record-breaking six members of Native American nations were elected to Congress. Deb Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo Nation, was also recently nominated to be the Secretary of the Interior for the incoming Biden administration. And she and many congresspeople and cabinet members, Native American or not, have their work cut out for them. Because Native American issues have long been ignored. When you look at Native American issues in America today, the unemployment and poverty rates are double the national average and they have been for at least 50, 60 years. And that tells me that it doesn't matter who shuffles in and out of that White House, Democrat or Republican, no one's doing anything about it. That's Native American policy in a nutshell right there. No one cares. But when you look at Charles Curtis's time, this was basically the last time we were relevant on a political stage. And so Native American issues have got to be prioritized in this country. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by McKamey Lynn. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Dan Rosato, and our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week.